Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast, where your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. Almost five years ago, in the middle of 2019, we uploaded the first episode of the Brain Health Revolution, a podcast about how our brains work and how to live a life that will ensure they work better for longer. We're incredibly proud of what we've achieved. Now we're excited to take the next big leap. The human experience is overwhelmingly spectacular and the way our brains process it all is fascinating. There are thousands of aspects of our lives that are enriched by neurological and psychological facts. We had the idea of taking each of these elements of life and looking at them closely through a neuroscientific lens with science-based stories, interviews, anecdotes, advice, and immersive sounds. We'll be exploring how every facet of our reality, both good and bad, affects our minds from the broader picture right down to the cellular intricacies. We'll be introducing this idea as a brand new show, and we're ecstatic to be previewing the first episode with you here on the Brain Health Revolution podcast today. This new podcast, we're calling it Your Brain On. There'll be your brain on sugar, your brain on sports, your brain on dreams, your brain on love. And we'll be sharing stories from some unexpected places, the extremes of human existence and the dark, strange corners of our history and our future. We're starting with an episode about something fairly recent. We all go through it at least once per year to welcome you to our new show about the neuroscience of everything. This is Your Brain on New Year's. Welcome to Your Brain On, a podcast about the neuroscience of everything. We're your hosts, Drs. Aisha and Dean Sherzai, and we're excited to be kicking off this brand new podcast with an episode that is quite fittingly about new beginnings, specifically the neuroscience of New Year's resolutions. We'll be discussing the psychology of fresh starts, the ways New Year's resolutions can help and hinder the brain's habit-forming structures, and why looking back on the past 12 months can create powerful moments of mindfulness. Plus, we'll explore how you can make your resolutions more manageable, achievable, and tangible, rooting your New Year's goals in a firm foundation of research-backed neuroscience. This is Your Brain on New Year's. There's an area at the front of your brain called the prefrontal cortex. It plays a crucial role in setting and pursuing goals like New Year's resolutions. The prefrontal cortex coordinates our working memory. That's essentially a storage system that enables us to hold information in our minds and manages such mental tools as impulse control, emotional regulation, and forward planning. All the things that make it possible for us to set goals, emotionally respond to successes and failures, and adapt our reactions to those successes and failures. The prefrontal cortex's ability to adapt is called cognitive flexibility. And cognitive flexibility can be both a blessing and a curse. It's the phenomenon that empowers us to consider and get excited about making changes in our lives. And it's also hunger for dopamine, the neurotransmitter associated with reward and pleasure. So while cognitive flexibility allows us to reach towards new ideas, like New Year's resolutions, it also bounces us back to what we know, familiar ways of doing things, our established habits. So to cement our resolutions into long-term changes rather than promises that dissipate a week into the new year, we must approach them 
in a way that continuously exercises our cognitive flexibility and sends dopamine signals to the prefrontal cortex to evoke a motivating sense of reward. To explain, let's go to a party. It's December 31st. You're surrounded by friends and family and having a great time. The dopamine messengers in your brain are on fire. The hippocampus, two thumb-shaped areas on the sides of your brain, key for memory is recalling episodic moments from the past 12 months. And your amygdala, which is just above your hippocampus, is eliciting emotions in response to these memories. You experience feelings of joy, sadness, thankfulness, regret, nostalgia. And given you're in a social setting where everyone's bouncing memories off of one another, the dopamine just keeps flooding. Your prefrontal cortex is running a cognitive flexibility marathon at this point. And as your mind starts shifting from the past to the future, that complex interplay of dopamine emotions and reward signals becomes entangled with your aspirations and ambitions. And as you begin to distill those ambitions into a resolution, perhaps by instinct or perhaps due to social cues, your prefrontal cortex starts to evaluate possibilities beyond the horizon of your existing habits. Your dopamine peaks. And the new year is here. Happy New Year! You wake up on the morning of January 1st and your brain reminds you of that exhilarating resolution. It somehow doesn't seem quite as exciting though. Dopamine works in waves after all. And following those mighty highs, we often experience gloomy lows. And when the aspiration behind a resolution is quite vague, it can feel impossible to reclaim that lofty sense of New Year ambition. With no clear structure, the resolution begins to fade. And a few days later, when the routines of life kick back into gear, your cognitive flexibility refocuses back onto familiar, habitual, and impulsive sources of dopamine. As if things couldn't get any worse, our old friend, the prefrontal cortex, starts a sort of cognitive self-appraisal, processing moral and ethical aspects of our behavior into emotions of guilt in the face of our perceived failures. And while guilt can be a motivator, it's also often a trigger for stress and can cause the release of the stress hormone cortisol, which may have a negative impact on the function of the prefrontal cortex, like decision-making and self-control. You can see why there is a whole industry built around self-motivation. And all it boils down to, all those lists of 10 ways to trick your mind into sticking to New Year resolutions that saturate social media throughout January, it's all just different ways to give your aspiration the kind of structure that your brain can literally get addicted to. We're all really familiar with those. Making these long-term changes does alter the actual physical structure of your brain through a process called neuroplasticity. But before we delve into the microscopic neuroscience of turning resolutions into habits, we're going to welcome our first Your Brain On guest. I often have a room of students and I say to them, how long do you think it takes to form a habit? And they say 21 days. And I say, oh, I'm not speaking to you anymore. I'm leaving. That's Dr. Philippa Lally, a senior lecturer of psychology at the University of Surrey, 
in the UK. I hope it's a slightly less prominent myth now than it used to be. Her insights on behavioral science and habits in the context of New Year's resolutions are fascinating. We think the misconception came from research from a plastic surgeon that actually said that it takes his patients 21 days to get used to some new part of their body if they've had some surgery or or something's changed, which is quite a different thing to forming a new behavioural habit in your daily life. But because it's such a nice number and it's a nice thing to say, people hang on to it. But the research generally shows that it takes quite a lot longer. And so it's not very helpful for people to think it's that quick because then they can get very disillusioned when they get to three weeks and they're like, oh, it's still such an effort, then they might give up. Another, I'm not sure if it's a myth, but people will say, how do you make and break habits? But actually, we don't really think that you can break a habit, as in the mental association you have formed between a situation and an action, which is the basis of a habit, doesn't just disappear. We can't just eradicate that. It's not so much a myth, but it's a potential simplification of the situation to kind of focus on how do you break it. It's it's what can we do around knowing that we've already got that association in order to try and stop the behavior from happening. I love the fact that you completely destroyed the concept of 21 days from the get-go. As a scientist, what has your experience been as far as how long does it take for a habit to form? And I know it depends on the habit. A bad habit of leaving your slippers on the stairs versus getting rid of a habit that has been a part and parcel of who you are since childhood are two very different things. But if you could just shed some light on that. Just for the audience's sake, she destroyed my habits of leaving the slippers on the stairs in five days, just in case anybody <laughs> wants to know. It worked, yes. <laughs> there was some shock therapy involved, but it worked. <laughs> yes. So making a new habit is different from breaking a habit that you don't want to have. Making a habit is simpler. So let's start there. The answer is, as with all scientific questions, it depends. It depends how you're counting it. It depends how you're measuring it. I would count things in terms of the number of repetitions. So the number of times you perform an action in a situation. For some behaviours, that could be many, many times a day. For other things, it might be once a week. I did a study as part of my PhD work. We set out to answer the question, how long does it take to form a habit? And we asked people to choose something, a behavior they wanted to perform. They chose it themselves so that they would be motivated. And then we asked them to do that every day. So once a day, it had to be something they could do once a day so that we could then count the days. And we asked them to, to go away and do it every day. Uh, it was a 12-week study. Every day they would report on how automatic it felt to do that using a self-report questionnaire. And we saw that perceived automaticity increased over time. So it went up and then it reached a flat level, it plateaued. It plateaued at different levels for different people and it took people different lengths of time to reach that plateau. The average time it took for people to reach that plateau, so it had got as strong as it was going to get, was 66 days. But we didn't put that in the abstract of the paper because we didn't want that to be the headline message because what was interesting to us was that the range was from 18 to 254 days. It's hugely variable. It's really different. Different people, different behaviours, different situations. But obviously the media still took the 66 days. So now if you Google how long does it take to form a habit, you probably get 66 days, not 21 days, which is from that study. But as soon as I talk to anybody about it, I try and explain that it's not that simple. I don't want anybody getting to 66 days and then saying, well, 
you lied. It's not a habit because that isn't our message. But trying to form a habit for something that you want to be a permanent part of your life is a very good thing to do because once you get to the level of it being a habit, it will be much easier for you to continue to do it. And if different things change in your life, as long as the cue, the situation stays the same, you'll keep performing the behavior. You use the word motivation. Dean and I most of the time believe that motivation can be a very disempowering word because it's non-measurable. It could potentially create a foundation for failure. And we would love for you to define motivation and how important is it in the formation and breaking of habits? I totally agree. I kind of use it as a catch-all term for we need to help people manage to actually perform the behavior for long enough for it to become a habit. And there are lots of other things that predict whether people are going to do what you want them to do. Social norms, whether they believe this is a normal thing for people to do, their perceived behavioral control or self-efficacy. So whether they even believe that they are able to do that thing in that situation. And then there's all the things that you have to translate from intention to action. We love the concept of break things down to their uh, fundamental elements as much as one can. Then you give people meaningful, measurable, actionable uh, behaviors that they can act upon as opposed to amorphous concepts that disempower because when they fail, because they didn't know what they were supposed to manipulate and measure and uh, alter, it is uh, most likely going to become the path of least resistance back to previous behaviors. Getting back to the new year resolution, it's always good to, to have a marker like New Year resolution, okay. How would you approach it? So New Year's resolutions are often, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to get fit. I'm going to read more. As you say, it doesn't tell you what to do and when to do it. So you need to break those things down into concrete plans of an action in a situation. And you need to think through your life to make sure that that plan is sensible because there's no point saying I'm going to read for half an hour when I wake up in the morning. If you know that when you wake up in the morning, you have to be at work half an hour later. You don't have time to sit and read a book for half an hour. Sometimes there's some trial and error in that because you can think about things and you think something might work, but you try it and it turns out it doesn't. Normally, New Year's resolutions are about some goal you want to get to in the future. They're not a behavioral plan. So breaking it down into one or a number of different plans, writing those down, making sure you remember them, that would be the first step. Once you start on a track, there needs to be some checking in and working out whether things are are working, which is where the monitoring can come in. Have a tick sheet. Did I do it today? And feeling good about yourself when you've done it. You didn't just achieve doing the thing you wanted to do today, but you started building that habit, which means you're going to be more likely to maintain that in the long term. If you say, I'm going to run a marathon and you don't run yet, it just feels so far away. You don't feel you can get there. So you need to have a plan of the steps that, that get you from where you are to where you want to be. The, the thing that also kills a lot of processes is guilt. We say, there's no failure. This didn't happen this day. Let's Let's figure it out. Why? And then process improve around that thing, which is a measurable, meaningful thing, as opposed to this bad feeling of guilt or failure. And sometimes that negative perspective <clears throat> and guilt actually stops people from starting a new yeah. path and going into this you know, creating a checklist or a tick sheet on your refrigerator. I think one thing that you said that resonated, simplifying an action and doing it. All of the self-help books and the concepts mm -hmm. are a variation of that one particular theme. What do you think of this rise of self-help category in social media on people's habits? Is it helpful? Do people actually get to do things better when they are inundated with these kind of information? Or do you think that this adds more to the confusion and to that inertia towards changing habits. 
it can be helpful and it can be very unhelpful. The problem is knowing which thing to pay attention to and knowing who to trust. There's so many messages and there's so much and there's so many people just talking about how wonderful their shiny, beautiful life is that it just makes you feel inadequate. There's no point trying to do anything because you're never going to be this beautiful, shiny person. Sometimes it can be helpful if you can find the right people to listen to. I mean, obviously being an academic, I'm always, I will listen to the academics, um, but anybody else, I'm not listening to them. Um, there are some self-help books, brilliant ones, written by academics. Those people have studied those things for years and years, and they then translate it into a language that everybody can understand. But there are a lot of other people that just write self-help books based on something they've just thought about in sitting in the bath or something. Um, and so it's not, you know, it's it can be can be very damaging, I think. Yeah, I agree. With so much out there um, for the general audience, sometimes it can be very difficult to understand or to differentiate between an evidence-based source and versus something that is not really uh, grounded in good science. And when we wrote our books, um, we had nearly 450 citations. And the first thing they jumped on, like, no, 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 if it's too thick on this it's shelf, it, yeah, it's not going to make it. I was, uh, so they had to put the citations in a separate uh, supplemental, supplemental information, information that they could download yeah, exactly. from the website. It's yeah. it's so funny having come from the academic realm into this. Um, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Absolutely. Oh, wonderful. Let me ask you a question about the impact of the pandemic on habits. I know you've written some of your publications are about that massive change in routine, this enforced external environment that nobody imagined would go through. How did this COVID-19 pandemic affect people's ability to form and maintain habits? It's the same as with kind of all habits. It's about the cues. A lot of our cues were disrupted. If people used to leave the home, have a commute, be in a work environment, commute home, the majority of their days on weekdays would be that that was all happening. And then suddenly they were staying in their houses. A lot of physical activity would disappear if that was, you know, part of their active commuting to work and back. Their diet would be different because they'd be eating at home more. The pandemic was stressful for a lot of reasons. But one reason that we'd like habits is they make us feel safe. We know what to expect. You know, it's kind of like when you go on holiday, even though going on holiday is lovely, it can be quite sort of stressful or, or to start with because you've got to work out where you need to be or what you need to do or, you know, all of those things. And so at the start of the pandemic, we all had to work out our new normal, work out how life was going to be and form new habits. What's interesting, I think, is that we haven't found it very difficult to pick up our old habits once things have gone back to normal, which is what I was saying about you don't really break habits. They're all still there. People obviously did to some extent, form habits for the new behaviours that they were told they needed to do. So social distancing, hand washing, those kinds of things. Some of those have stayed, but some of them have gone. Like the physical distancing, once we didn't have to do it anymore, we very quickly stopped doing it. I think that's because we didn't really like doing it. It didn't come naturally. We kind of had to force ourselves to do it. You know, reward is an important part of the habit mechanism. And so I think Although we, to some extent, formed habits for those things, I don't think they were as strong as other habits. You know, I, I always say, you know, it doesn't take me long to form a chocolate eating habit. Um, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whereas those ones that were, you know, breaking the habits of, you know, shaking hands with somebody when you meet them, I don't think they were really broken. We were having to not shake hands. We we're having to stop ourselves from shaking hands in situations when we normally would until we felt that we could go back to doing that again. Could the strength of habits be related to their evolutionary survival weight? 
let's say, valence. Shaking hands, you're taking away the defense, you're taking away the tension, you're taking away the anxiety or the fight or flight component. So there's not as strong as chocolate, but it has a, uh, some some valence, some, some exponent in the uh, formula. It's also been repeated an awful lot of times. Little children probably don't shake hands very much, but once you get to a certain age, when you meet somebody, you shake their hand. It's a very instilled social convention. But speaking to that, giving up alcohol, January is dry yeah. January, but giving up alcohol. Alcohol uh, has a, a social component, but also it has a direct effect on dopamine release, anxiety reduction through its effect on frontal lobe. So it has a very physiological effect. Uh, how would you take that on? We always try and distinguish between habit and addiction. Alcohol can sometimes fall in the middle a bit, but you're right. There's an addictive component of those really strong physiological reactions. But there's also the habit part. And it's the same with smoking. There was a lovely study from when the, they brought in the smoking ban in the UK, You know, talking to smokers who, who totally intended to not smoke in a pub. They didn't intend to break this new law, but would find themselves lighting up and then suddenly go, oh no, and have to stop themselves because of the habit. So it wasn't because they had a chemical biological urge to smoke, but the habit was still was still there. The hardest way to not perform the behavior is just to intend to consciously inhibit yourself. So if I say to myself, right, I'm not eating chocolate anymore, that's it. I then have to be monitoring myself all day long for the cues that might trigger that chocolate eating. That's a really hard thing to do. What's easier to do is make sure there is no chocolate, call it different things, but basically it's to do with removing the behavioral option. So for dry January, no alcohol in the house. It's by far the simplest way to control in it's not going to completely solve it because you will go out but it's definitely one thing that I would suggest or you remove the queue so if I know that I walk a particular route to work and I always pass the bakery and buy a croissant and I don't need it I can try and take a different route to work so that I don't pass the bakery if you can't remove the queue and you can't remove the behavior then it's trying to replace it one with another I know I have a habit for one behavior, can I decide on a different action I'm going to do in that situation? And the hope is that with enough repetitions, the new habit would be stronger than the old one. A lot of people fail New Year's resolutions. The numbers are just atrocious. But if you would have your own family start a New Year resolution, what would be the mindset? What would be the steps? What would they avoid? Yeah, thinking through what you want to achieve, working out what actual behaviors you need to do to get to that point, thinking about where those behaviors fit in your life, where there is the time and the capacity, thinking about what you need in your environment to make that possible. So if you want to eat more fruit, you need to have fruit. If you want to start running, you need trainers. So thinking through those things, potentially involving other people. So making sure that, that if something's now a priority to you that wasn't before, make sure the people that you live with understand that so that they support you in that. Set reminders if you think there's a chance you might forget. Create an environment that supports you, that supports you doing the thing you want to do. Or if you're trying to break something, try to change your environment to make it much harder for you to do that thing. Now, let's look at habits at a more cellular level to better understand how we can make our New Year's resolutions more successful. Put simply, one of the functions of habits is saving energy by effectively and efficiently repeating behaviors. Habits are formed in the basal ganglia, a structure deep in the brain that nurtures patterns of behavior and also supports the reward and reinforcement systems that can become underlying factors of addiction. So when we attempt New Year's resolutions, 
we're essentially trying to fight our brain's default systems. That's why they fail so often. But by working with our own neural wiring, not against it, we can turn them into successes. But resolutions often lack specificity and clear planning, making them more of a vague wish than a tangible goal. Our brains thrive on detailed, structured plans and struggle to latch on to more abstract ideas. That's a cliche because it's true. Breaking your big ideas down into smaller, incremental changes is the way to go. Instead of aiming to get healthy, aim to walk 10,000 steps or eat three vegetables every day. Eventually, as your brain recognizes that performing a new behavior results in a positive impact, it will release dopamine, creating a sense of reward that will motivate you to repeat the behavior and ultimately form a new habit. Environment is also very important. Your surroundings significantly influence your habits. If you want to start exercising more, laying out your workout gear in the morning or the night before creates an unavoidable visual motivator. It makes it much easier to engage with the habit too, removing the starting hurdles that can push us to fall back on our entrenched neural wiring by making new activities feel like time-consuming chores that don't really fit neatly into our schedules. It's also called habit stacking, isn't it? Yes, it is. Another secret weapon in your New Year's resolution arsenal is mindfulness. If we could simply be more conscious of our actions and the distractions in our life, we can firmly stay on the path towards new habitual behaviors. Finally, practice self-compassion. Celebrate the steps you take towards your resolutions and acknowledge slip-ups as a beneficial part of the learning process. You'll reduce your stress levels and avert the risk of developing negative associations with your aspirations. To talk more about the mechanics of behavior change and the opportunities and pitfalls of the new year as a starting point for our goals, we're excited to welcome our good friend, Dr. Howard Jacobson, to Your Brain on Podcast. Howie, thank you so much for joining us. You are one of our favorite people in this world. You know, there, there are times when people like compliment me and then I have this urge to like, you know, argue with them. But you guys are so smart that I think I'm just going to take it. <laughs> good, good, good. You should. Yeah, yeah. Coming to this topic of New Year resolutions, we are basically in many ways managing an undercurrent of, I don't think it's one thing. We call it anxiety. We call it angst. We call it worry. We call it a sense of urgency. What do you think about managing that, those emotions while you're doing this New Year resolution? It's a cultural thing. We like to improve ourselves. It's a way of signaling what sort of person we are. An easy way to do that is to talk about what are your New Year's resolutions. And there is something neuroscience-based that's smart about it. The blank slate or a new page or you know, a new beginning. We, we give them power and so they give us power in return. The problem is that we think, you know, New Year's resolutions is some sort of like magic fairy dust. Come January 1st, I will now have the drive, the ability, the, the grit, the stick to itiveness, the creativity. I love the word stick to itiveness. Yes. I just wanted yes. to yeah. emphasize that. <laughs> I love that word. It's just as, you know, as if you were to say, I'm going to go climb a mountain or go on a strenuous hike or do something difficult, you probably wouldn't show up at Everest Base Camp in the same clothes you wear to the beach. If you're going to do a New Year's resolution or multiple, use the time beforehand to do the kind of preparation that's most likely to help you succeed. 
I, I, I definitely think that one of the things that impedes people from moving forward is guilt. There should be no guilt anyway, but for a lot of people, it resets that guilt. Like you said, people have to get prepared beforehand and prepared for the after the fact and all of that. But at least the cultural reset has this, this power of saying, oh, it's not just me that's resetting and not feeling guilty. A lot of people are. So it really has a little bit of a greater power and its ability to clean up the slate. Yeah, I think that the way I think about this is the brain knows nothing of the world. It's just spinning theories based on sensory data. So when we don't know something, our brain will make up a story to make it make sense. So if we try to change and we can't change, the brain's going to come up with a story. And the stories in our culture are you lack willpower, you're lazy, you're broken somehow, you were traumatized as a kid and now you'll never be able to do it, right? Whatever story your brain chooses, it chooses that rather than, oh, you're just learning to play an instrument and you made a mistake. And if you make, a, if I, when I make a mistake when I'm playing an instrument, I can stop and say, oh, that didn't sound right. What happened there? And I can go back and try it again and do it slower and isolate that note and practice it deliberately until it becomes second nature. There's no morality involved in that process. It's simply mechanics. Behavior change is about deliberate practice of specific moments in which you have created a plan to do X instead of Y. Beautiful, beautiful. beautiful. It's not a a referendum on character. It's a process improvement. It makes it so much cleaner and systematic as opposed to this uh, emotion-laden self-measurement system that's so destructive for so many. Yeah. So if you had to guide people through this New Year resolution concept, how would you start them? So if anyone has ever worked in business, I would ask them to look at this as if it was a project. So would the CEO come to you know, stand up at a big meeting and say, okay, everybody, next year we're going to double our sales. And everyone cheers, and then they go back to work and keep doing exactly what they've been doing. No, if in business, if you want to double your sales, you have a plan. How are we going to do it? Are we going to increase profits? Are we going to decrease costs? Are we going to enter new markets? Let's make quarterly plans and then we'll divide those quarterly plans into weeks or two weeks and if the thing i'm going to do now the new habit is painful working out hard or giving up my favorite foods and the benefit is six months or a year or five years down the line the brain math doesn't really work out because of something called future discounting if it's so far in the future we can't even imagine it so instead of focusing on the outcome Focus on your values. There's been wonderful work done by some protégés of Carol Dweck who, who wrote the book Mindset. What happens if you take a group of people who you're going to introduce a new behavior to and you have them sit and write about their values for 10 minutes? I value family or I value honesty. I value integrity. And then you, you teach them about how to eat to lose weight. Then your brain maps those values onto the thing you're doing. I want to eat this baby carrot because I want to be a good role model for my family, because I want to have my health so I don't end up in a nursing home with strangers taking care of me. Whatever the thing is, when we tie the behavior to our values, we get the dopamine rush right away. We don't have to wait for the long-term future outcome. We can be happy now. 
Yeah. And, and there's, there's another thing I want, to say, I want to say that I find people find very empowering because when we, when we think about changing our habits, we think, oh, this is a 24-7 thing. For the rest of my life, I can't have X or I've got to do Y. And it becomes overwhelming and global. The truth is, for most habits, maybe it's 30 seconds a day that actually matters. If I, my habit is on the way home from work, I stop at McDonald's, I've finished work, I'm beat, Maybe it's not a great job. I'm not real happy. I know when I get home, I'm going to have laundry. I'm going to have to make dinner. I'm, I'm at a huge like joy deficit. And that shake and those fries, I know are going to give me joy. And by the time I've, I've pulled out of the parking lot, I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it today. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But you know you are. So people would think about like that as a very global thing. But in fact, I want you to imagine, visual, either visualize or some people can't visualize. So just sort of lay out the steps to get you to the drive-in window at McDonald's. Okay, I leave the parking lot, I drive, I turn left here. Now imagine that you've succeeded in not going. If I get into the left lane, then I'm, I can make it to McDonald's. If I'm in the right lane, I'm just gonna go straight. Where do the two movies diverge? That's your point. We've talked about the challenges and the science, but what about the fun? Neuroscience tells us that enjoyment is a crucial component in forming and maintaining new habits. When we enjoy an activity, our brain releases more dopamine, which not only makes us feel good, but also reinforces the behavior. So the key to sticking to your resolutions might just be finding ways to make them more enjoyable. Absolutely. Make them not just a chore, but something we can look forward to on a daily basis. First up, gamification. This is where you turn your resolution into a game. Set up rewards for yourself when you reach certain milestones. For example, if your resolution is to exercise more, treat yourself to a movie night after a week of consistent workouts and really master this behavior reward phenomenon. Uh, something like um, overtly saying, I did it. I got a week of exercise done and did X amount of steps better than last week. Write it on a board or somewhere visible and feel good about it. And make sure we don't reward a good behavior with a bad one. Example is, when you finished a week of working out, rewarding yourself with a glazed donut. Worse than the donut, which you may want to eat on occasion, is the fact that the reward is connected to donut, which gives that donut even more power as if that is possible. It's impossible. <laughs> it's absolutely impossible. Now, don't forget about the social element. Challenge friends or family members to join you in your resolution. Having a bit of a friendly competition can be a great motivator and make the process much more enjoyable and fun. Get creative with how you approach your resolutions. If your goal is to eat healthier, Try experimenting with new recipes or cuisines. Make it an adventure rather than a restriction. Or if you're aiming to learn a new skill or hobby, find unique and engaging ways to practice. For instance, if you want to learn a new language, watch movies or listen to music in that language. It's not just effective, it's fun. It is literally about mentally investing in change. A change-seeking mindset is basically control over one's dopamine. Technology can also be a great ally. There are countless apps and online communities that can make your resolutions more engaging. From fitness apps with virtual challenges to language learning apps that feel like playing a game 
the options are endless. Let's not forget the best brain optimizing app, the Neuroplan app. We're really not biased. It is an incredible app. And virtual reality. Imagine practicing yoga or meditation in a virtual environment that transports you to a peaceful forest or a serene beach. Technology can turn mundane activities into exciting experiences. Sharing your journey can also add an element of fun. Start to write a blog or make a vlog or social media account dedicated to your resolution. The support and interaction from others can be incredibly motivating and enjoyable. As we wrap up this episode, let's not forget celebrating your progress. No matter how small the achievement, celebrating your milestones is crucial. It's not just about reaching the end goal, it's about enjoying the journey. So as we say goodbye, we encourage you to approach your New Year's resolutions with a sense of playfulness and joy. Remember, the journey towards your goals should be as rewarding as the destination. We hope you enjoyed the first episode of Your Brain On, our brand new podcast about the neuroscience of everything. We're excited to share more with you. Next week, in fact, we'll also be previewing a second episode here on Brain Health Revolution podcast, Your Brain On Dry January. Thank you for listening.